Hey everyone, and welcome to Startup Savants, a podcast dedicated to helping aspiring entrepreneurs and startup enthusiasts by bringing you news, insights, and stories about the startups and founders that are making waves right now. I'm your host, Ethan. And I'm your other host, Annika. Our guest today is Kaylin Marcotte, founder of Jiggy. Kaylin is a former employee of The Skim. In fact, she was employee number one. Kaylin turned her favorite hobby into the fast-growing, mission-driven jigsaw puzzle startup, Jiggy. Hey, Kaylin. Happy to have you here. Hey, thanks, guys. Happy to be here. All right. Tell us a little bit about the history behind Jiggy, its mission, and how you got started. Yeah. Um, my journey with jigsaw puzzles began like 2014, as you mentioned, I was the first employee at the skim. So that was my uh, first entry into the startup world, startup life, living that, that grind in the early days. And it was an incredible experience, but definitely, you know, stressful and all consuming. And I was on screens all day long. And so I was looking for a way to unwind and unplug. And, you know, it was 2014, 15, we were starting to have these conversations around burnout and kind of tech fatigue. And I wanted to get away from screens and do something with my hands. And I rediscovered my love of puzzles, which, you know, I'd done as a kid, but not for 15 or so years. Um, and I did one, it clicked immediately. And I started doing about a thousand piece puzzle every week. And oh, wow. so was constantly <laughs> looking for more, buying more, you know, going to toy stores online. And all the ones I could find were just, I felt really outdated and kind of cheesy, you know, grandma's puzzles, stock yes. photography, <laughs> the same cardboard box. And the idea planted then of just what would it look like if I made my dream puzzle and what parts of the puzzle experience would I want to um, innovate on and, and kind of take my approach to. And so uh, ended up being at the skim for four years. So this was definitely a kind of a slow burn of an idea. Kept coming back to me, kept taking more and more shape. Um, and ultimately what, what came together and what I ended up launching with in 2019 is Jiggy. And we partner with emerging female artists and turn their artwork into the puzzle design. So that was kind of pain point number one of just the design itself that you're spending eight, 10, 12 hours with living inside of putting together piece by piece. And part two is, you know, what do you do with the puzzle once you're done? And for me, I was pretty, you know, sentimental of these hours I had just spent. I didn't want to tear it apart right away. Um, and so we include puzzle glue with each jiggy so that you can preserve it once you're done, bind the pieces and preserve it, display it as wall art. Um, so our mission is to get people away from screens, kind of reconnecting with downtime, um, mindfulness, and then supporting our artist partners who we do profit sharing with and get a percentage of every sale. That's, I, oh man, I, <laughs> I think a lot of people maybe have been looking for this outlet, um, especially tech fatigue, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, and maybe there's a big chunk that have 
that relationship with puzzles from their childhood or from being younger and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. um, I got really excited when it was like, all right, we're going to talk to Kaylin with Jiggy. And I was like, yes, <laughs> super excited. Um, but this was your first experience in manufacturing and logistics surrounding yeah. that. Um, how did you kind of develop this new skill set and what were the roadblocks? Yeah, steep learning curve there. Obviously, you know, there were some very transferable things from the skim experience, but um, Jiggy being my first physical product and all the whole world of supply chain manufacturing, you know, fulfillment, um, customer service in that, in that way, uh, was, was brand new. And not only was it brand new to me, it was also from four months in a, a constantly moving target because we launched November, 2019. So, you know, three, four months later, um, the COVID just shook, you know, as many of us know and have felt the impacts of this supply chain mm -hmm. world and um, sourcing products, freight, everything just got more complicated and more expensive. Um, so, you know, it was bootstrapping. So trying to do everything in the scrappiest way possible, you know, for the first or second time ever um, brought a ton of challenges. You know, I think once we had our core manufacturing partner, which was its own process. And I think there's actually a ton of opportunity in, you know, finding factories. How do you match people with ideas with people who can make it? Um, I kind of naively thought like, there must be some index or like a directory <laughs> and you just, you know, it puzzles, it. like who makes these? Let's Google it. Um, yeah. And it ended up being much more challenging to, especially since so much of our product is custom, to find someone willing, able and willing uh, to to take that bet on us, you know, pre-revenue, pre-launch, like it's their investment too, to even like fire up the machines for you. Um, right. So that was, you know, really much more of a partnership than I think I had previously expected. And, uh, and then again, doing every piece of our packaging fully custom, the pieces come in a reusable glass jar with a cork lid. We include the puzzle glue, um, that's not, you know, marketed as puzzle glue and we didn't want to use plastic. So it comes in an aluminum tube, which was apparently for hair cream, which is a thing. So kind huh. of just piecemealing each, um, each aspect of the packaging together, uh, was, you know, almost a year long process, uh, during that time, kind of parallel path with curating the art, figuring out that relationship with the artists, the, these royalties, how do we support them and help, um, help really monetize their work. And then the, you know, the tech side and the website and building that out. So kind of those were the three, um, three processes I, I did for about a year before launching um, and then started out of my living room fulfilling and had my little station of packing <laughs> orders and stuff. But very quickly, especially with the dimensions of our product, I think it was a blessing. I had a friend who did a jewelry business and I think because it was so compact, it actually mm -hmm. like kind of enabled her to do it much longer. Our, you know, kind of um, silver lining of 
each box, each MasterCard only has six puzzles and they were already stacked and there were only, you know, a hundred of them. So it didn't last long doing it in my living room. And so we got um, a third party logistics partner who handles all fulfillment nice. and uh, kind of been off to the races ever since then. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk about packaging real quick because the packaging that y'all have is very different from traditional what you'd know as like puzzle packaging. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I appreciate switching lanes on that one, but what kind of drove you to make that change? Yeah, I stemmed from a couple different um, approaches. One was that I really wanted it to feel like a more elevated kind of premium product. From the beginning, I kind of wanted to reposition puzzles out of kind of toy and games aisle and more into like home gift, you know, Mm -hmm. um, lifestyle. And so I wanted the packaging to reflect that, um, because each of the puzzle designs was original artwork by these female artists. I also wanted the packaging to kind of reflect, like be worthy of show showcasing their art. And so kind of took, um, inspiration from like very minimalist, you know, museum or gallery kind of white. It's it, the box sits upright. Um, mm-hmm. so it's a square base and then sits upright, almost like kind of pedestal ish. Um, and then it's, it's, you know, thick white, um, has some gold foil that's meant to kind of, uh, evoke like a frame. And then the, the image of the puzzle, um, is displayed there are, we say puzzles worth framing and and also art in pieces is kind of our, some of our, our brand language. So that's on the packaging. Um, and then inside you have the reusable glass jar. So I wanted something that, uh, one, if you do do the puzzle and glue it and frame it, like you have this, um, you know, piece of your jiggy experience that you can reuse. We've seen people use them as flower vases, cookie jars. Um, there was one time during during the first kind of COVID lockdown when somebody used it as their sourdough starter, you know, oh, container. Oh, yeah. And I was like, these <laughs> these COVID pandemic trends merging. <laughs> yeah. But uh or if you don't, if you choose not to glue your puzzle to put the pieces back in there and have it almost be able to stand alone, like on a bookshelf and kind of look, um, look decorative. And then mm-hmm. the, the glue, um, obviously, you know, we need to package comes in an aluminum tube. And then really during the kind of product, uh, ideation was trying to figure out what to include to apply the glue and I had tried different things and I thought maybe like a tiny paintbrush or something, but that left like marks, you know, streaks. Um, yeah. so maybe, um, a little, a mini like paint roller and that didn't work for other reasons. And so finally I was on like Reddit and some guy, Randy, <laughs> who glues all his puzzles posted a video of him doing it and he just like dumped glue out and used his, it was either his credit card or his driver's license. And just oh like spread God. it. And I was like, I guess that's all you need. And it's just like a straight edge tool that just like, you know, gets it closely um, spread in between the, the cracks of the pieces. So we developed uh, this glue spreader, which is in kind of our signature shape and has our logo cut out and um, and looks kind of decorative as well. Well, thank you, Randy from Reddit. 
That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, a, I, I'm imagining the mini paint roller, and that's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> but I can understand Randy. Randy pulled through. Yeah. <laughs> so we know you work with um, with upcoming artists um, mm-hmm. and and lots of awesome people to put together the artwork for mm-hmm. the puzzles. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about the relationships uh, with those artists and how you find and decide to work with an artist um, and whether or not anybody can submit their art to Jiggy. Yeah, it's it's honestly m- my favorite and kind of the the aspect of the business that really keeps me going when when I run out of energy. Um so I grew up in, in Los Angeles and my mother worked in arts education my entire life. And so I was always surrounded by the art community there. And I really saw how, even if you, you know, have made it, if you will, and have gallery representation or are participating in exhibits, you know, now, of course, like Instagram, building a following, it's still so hard to actually monetize your work. And um, I think artists oftentimes, you know, just copyright and especially with social media and sharing, it's hard to really, um, you know, uh, correctly credit and, uh, and pay artists for their work. So wanted to make sure from the beginning, we had that really baked into the business model. Um, and I just started going to fairs and shows, you know, based in New York. So plenty of, um, opportunities to to kind of scout new artists and I really approached it from both you know what would look good just completed and finished and something you'd want to frame on the wall and also what would make for a really fun puzzle experience you know certainly like detail and color and saturation and layers and so I just started with that lens in mind going to to shows and fairs and um found the first six artists we worked with for our launch collection uh, myself reached out to them you know wasn't wasn't really sure what if they would think it's like silly or just like not not an application of their work you know they were interested in um but actually it was great great reception i think they um, we're open to kind of seeing what the experience would be like with people then, you know, puzzling their work. And I think something I didn't necessarily expect, but has become a really special aspect is that relationship between the, you know, the customer puzzler and the artist where, you know, you have studied every detail of their work, like yeah. truly. And so there's such an appreciation, you know, for, the work and for the detail and kind of this intimacy because you kind of feel a bit of like ownership in having recreated it also. So like you feel like part of the creative process um, with the artists and, you know, tag each other on social and, um, and some of they'll discover an artist through the puzzle and then go on their site and, and buy their other work. Um, so that's been a really, really kind of special, um, thing to watch happen. Uh, for us, you know, we now that was pre-launch. I was just always had my eyes open scouring. Um, and now that we, have had some visibility. We have a lot of inbound. So we have basically like an open submission process and any artist can submit their work. Um, we now have a few different like use cases, which is great. Some are just our curated collections, which we 
do seasonally, but we've also started working with partners and brands and doing custom puzzles or collaborations. So we'll pull from our artist community to commission an original for a brand that wants to do um, a custom puzzle. And actually our, our next collection that's launching this spring was the result of our first community art voting contest. And so artists, I think we had over 500 submit their work and our community of puzzlers um, went went through and voted for their favorites. Uh, and so oh, that awesome. is the winners of that are our next collection launching soon. So you've really got the community involved in this as well. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Especially from my skim experience, I've, I'm a big believer of uh, leading with community around your brand. Right. Right. Um, so onto the kind of nuts and bolts of, of those relationships with the, with the artists did you, how did you put together the licensing or copyright agreements um, with those artists? Did you kind of pull from a template that exists out there or is this something that yeah. you <laughs> had to really learn on your own as well? Both. I definitely have taken the approach, especially, you know, bootstrapping. Again, I started with $25,000 of my savings from the eight years of working before launching and uh, so really tried to stretch a dollar and do as much as I could myself. So found, you know, I don't know if it was like legal zoom or rocket lawyer or whatever, but to found templates out there. Um, and, and, and tried to just reach out to anybody I knew in my network who might have insight on not necessarily, uh, just the, the legal language, but also just industry norms, like what is standard, you know, royalty rates, terms, um, and anything that I should, you know, be, be mindful to, um, what artists really care about. Um, you know, in the beginning, we've now, as I mentioned, especially with brand partners, starting to do originals, but I, in the beginning, didn't, you know, with, with kind of an unproven, untested market, didn't know what kind of sales to expect. Didn't want to ask artists to create new work if I couldn't, you know, pay them up front for the, for like a commission rate. And so we just pulled from their existing work. So there was no, um, kind of, you know, there was no work needed on their end. We pulled mm -hmm. from existing portfolio and they got paid out on royalties, uh, on a quarterly basis. So, um, you know, trying to just be mindful of how, how it could be a win-win really for, for both. Um, but yeah, the contract itself, you know, we actually just, I think in the last like six months had, had a real like art licensing lawyer revamp it. But the first couple of years, um, was definitely, definitely scrappy and a lot of hacking together templates and Google and <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. You made it work. That's what counts. Yep. Well, and yep. copyright law is, is not easy. So <laughs> no, at all. <laughs> no, I think people go to school for quite some time to, to, be able to, <laughs> to make like, things like that happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Um, so you were on Shark Tank, and I think uh, yes. I think that people have heard of Shark Tank. Um, 
So I want to talk about before the before you went to Shark Tank. What what was the the kind of preparation for that? What did what did that process look like for you? It was a really good forcing function for me to 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 have to do that homework and ask some of the big questions and be ready for the big questions. You know, again, bootstrapping, I didn't bootstrapping and being a solo founder, I didn't really have anyone to like push back on me or like, you know, be accountable to. Um, so the zooming out, especially when you're also a one woman show and so in the weeds and, and kind of, you know, in the business versus working mm-hmm. on the business. Um, right. I, I really appreciated the opportunity. You know, of course it, I was like taking it very seriously and wanted to, um, to really walk out there feeling as prepared as I could. Uh, but it, it was also just really important, um, kind of zooming out and big picture strategy, um, that, it's really hard to hold, you know, carve out time and hold yourself to do, uh, without such a, an impetus like that. Um, so I, you know, started, I of course watched a ton of the show and there are five questions like, you know, you're going to get. And then from there, um, you know, really tried to, tried to work backwards from like, what do I want the outcome to be? Or like, what do I want somebody to watching to, to walk away knowing about the company and my story? And so I think you really, when you're out there and sharks are all talking over each other and bouncing, like as much as it's kind of, you know, just media training 101, but like, how can you make sure that you're, as much as you can controlling the conversation to, to communicate what you need to get across at the end of the day. Um, so watched a ton of it, made sure like I knew brought in, you know, the, the head of analytics at the skim, who was just a friend. And I was like, all right, what are my numbers? What's CAC to like (laughs) help me here? So called in some favors for sure. Had a bunch of friends, you know, this was, uh, 2020 and so all zoom but get on zoom and pretend to be the sharks and um grill me and a bunch of practice sessions um and then ultimately you know i think because at that point i had zero employees and had truly done everything myself i was kind of like there's nothing they can ask me that i don't know the answer to right, because yeah, i've right. literally done everything you are so, intimately um, involved yes right right so uh so then just tried to kind of have fun with it that's cool um so we all see shark tank and we see these people making deals and mm-hmm. we see that you know there's a lot of publicity that comes from comes from being on the show do you see it as more of an opportunity for funding as a an opportunity for a celebrity partnership i'm i'm going mm-hmm. air quotes here um <laughs> is it is it is the benefit the the appearance on the show i mean what in your opinion what's the what's the major benefit of of appearing on something as widely popular as shark tank i think it's both and i think it really depends on the state of the business. And I think it's actually changed a lot over, certainly since the show began. I mean, if you watch the old seasons, like 
it was, I think the average deal was like 30% for 300,000. So like, you know, a million dollar valuation and, and it was real, like, you know, real kind of mom and pop. Um, and that was maybe a great deal. And, the funding and that exposure to having an advisor like one of the sharks, like mm-hmm. um, really, you know, was was the desired outcome. I think now you see a, a big mix and they're like already VC backed, like real growth stage businesses also going on um, for either like more strategic money. I think less than the numbers they're looking for, like the um, strategic um money of a shark and of course the exposure um i think you know just reaching the shark tank audience you know you reach consumers and people that hopefully will come and shop and you know stay in your your ecosystem and become advocates but also a lot of you know other investors watch the show so people like spin it into a whole round and follow on investment um a lot of like large retail, so big wholesale accounts or um, collaboration. So I I found personally a lot, you know, just the straight, you know, traffic and sales day of is like great and such a high, but a lot of kind of tangential um, exposure to, to different partners, retailers, wholesale, um, and, you know, potential investors or acquirers. So you're saying that not all money is equal? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I would what, say that. <laughs> so so can you can you dive in a little more on what strategic money uh, means to you? Well, I think you see a lot on the show, like, and the sharks do it too. Like, they try to picture where you would fit in within their portfolio. So you'll see, like... Mm-hmm. Um, like Mr. Wonderful being like, oh, this is a, this is a subscription business. I have a ton of subscription with this product pair with like my wine, you know, my wine box club of the month, you know, or yeah. the wedding industry. Um, so Mark does a ton of like education stuff. Um, so I think, you know, Lori, of course, immediately she's like, if I can get you on QVC, like value add. So, um, I think thinking of and really doing the research, you know, if you're preparing for the show of what do the existing portfolios look like? What are the, um, you know, natural advantages each of the sharks might have? Um, I mean, people do this, you know, certainly with outside of Shark Tank, um, with, you know, larger companies or opportunities that position them uniquely. Uh, in the market in some way. So I think there's, especially if you, if you can get the same terms from multiple sources, then really kind of thinking about all of that, the value add, uh, that each might be able to provide. Yeah. It, it just sounds to me like Shark Tank is like the ultimate pitch practice. Like (laughs) you have to have it down together a hundred percent before you're going to be on TV. Um, definitely. I think the, yeah, like one take, like one take and everything you say can and will be used against you kind of thing is, uh, Uh, it definitely gets the adrenaline going. Yeah. No kidding. I, what were your nerves like in that situation? I feel like I'd rather not. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, so you walk, the funny part is you walk it, you know, and it looks exactly like the, you're standing outside and you hear the countdown and then the doors open and you walk down the hallway, but then you get into the tank and you hit your mark and you stand there in silence for like 30 to 60 seconds while they adjust the cameras and everything. (laughs) And then from the side, someone just yells, go, and then you start. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, talk about a cold start. You're literally standing there trying to just like smile at them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Oh my God. I'm, I'm very impressed. I would, (laughs) I'd probably pass out. Um, but (laughs) switching to another aspect of your background, um, you started in law and then moved into working for the skim where it sounds like you, you were kind of employee one. Um, Mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit about that background and that experience and, and how, how, and if it influenced your choice to jump into entrepreneurship? Definitely did. Um, so yeah, I started, I was pre-law, I was paralegal, was studying for the LSAT and then, uh, was doing management consulting while I was getting my applications together. Um, and the skim really was just one of those time and place things that kind of totally derailed in a great way and just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, hard, hard right turn. So I, was doing management consulting. I was kind of looking at the businesses I was working on there. And I was like, I really feel like what I'm missing is like a personal connection to whatever the service or product, like how fun would it be to work somewhere where I am a consumer of that? And Mm -hmm. um, so I had been subscribed to the skim very early on. They launched the newsletter in um, summer of 2012 and one of the co-founders um, and I had a mutual friend, and I think that's how she posted it, or somehow uh, she shared it, and I got signed up. You know, within the first six months, and so I had already been uh, a reader of it, and just I was a poli sci major, undergrad, so just really connected with just the mission and like, you know, we were hearing at the time like millennials are cord cutting and not reading the newspaper and like. And I was like, that's, it is like, how, how is my generation going to connect with the current events in the world around them? And so I was just so drawn to, um, to their mission and then had, had a coffee date with Carly and Danielle and just talked about, you know, what the next couple of years and what their goals were. Um, so joined as their first employee. And I, I absolutely think that seeing the inside of a startup so early really helped like demystify what it is and like what it takes. And, you know, I think from the outside, it's very easy to think, you know, everyone totally has it together. They have so many, you know, expertise or skill sets or things I don't have yet. How could I, you know, do that too? And so being being in those rooms and in those conversations and really seeing like we're all winging it and <laughs> you know sure you you um you bring what you know and you lead with especially at the skim kind of the values of like community and transparency and uh we just, just throw it at the wall and see what sticks and so i think it really helped um give me the confidence that that i could figure it out when I was ready. Um, and just the people, I mean, Carl, they hired 
so, so well. So the people I was surrounded by, especially the first, you know, I think the first year we ended with eight employees and then like 20, um, the next. So seeing it from zero, you know, seed stage to like 75, 80 when I left, which was like a year after the series B, those years were just like super meaty, you know, creative, um, part of the company's history. It's, uh, I, I feel like a lot of people outside of the startup world just think you snap your fingers and, and everyone knows exactly what you're doing. And we just talked to someone yesterday who's like, no, you, you approach every step like a little newborn. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing. And then you just sort of add skills as you come across them. So Absolutely. And I think I have a friend who kind of coined uh, this term. She was an investor and I think she actually did a TED talk on this topic, but um, she coined like what she thinks the most important quality in a founder early team is um, not, she calls IQ, EQ, but AQ, which is your adaptability quotient. And I think that's so, I mean, I had been thinking about Jiggy for years, finally launched it four months later, global pandemic. Like you never, <laughs> whether it's that dramatic or not, like you, you don't know, you know, what's going to be thrown at you and what the circumstances are. So I definitely think just, um, adaptability is, is a really big kind of indicator. Um, but there's a total like survivor bias. You're right. Of like, you know, of course that was going to work. That was always going to work. I'm like, <laughs> no, I can definitely tell you <laughs> there, there are times you doubt everything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like once or twice every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those highs um, and lows, like they're five minutes apart, multiple oh, times yeah. a day. Oh, for yeah. sure. <laughs> and you've talked about work-life balance and what that means to you in your own um, experience. Um, can you tell us more about that? How do you find that balance and why is it so important to you? I've kind of come around to a different approach for me, which I think for a long time with work-life balance, I would try to have both like at the same time and have every day feel balanced or like every week feel balanced. And I don't know, I'm, I'm like a bit more of an extremes person. And so what actually works better for me is to not try to be a good, you know, be a good founder at the same time that I'm good friend, daughter, girlfriend, sister, like, I just, I kind of think it comes down to clear expectations. And so they're like, you know, especially like our Q4, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to carve out some time. Let's see when works. But like, honestly, most of the next eight weeks, like I, I, I'm in a bit of a hole, probably not going to like respond to texts in a couple hours, you know? And so it, and it kind of, it releases like the guilt of trying to be good at both at the same time. And so Um, But equally, when I carve out space, like I have no guilt about not checking my phone and not being responsive to emails right away. Um, And so I think for me, I find it really hard to to be half minded um, or half available. So I kind of have tried to (laughs) flip it on its head and just not um, and do one thing well at a time. Um, and then if, you know, if the month feels overall balanced, like that feels like a win to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think something I've, I've heard from peers and coworkers is that guilt thing. Like, oh, someone mm-hmm. sent me a message at eight o'clock and I didn't respond to it and I feel horrible about that. And it's like, you, you know, designating times to be at yeah. work or to be at home. Um, I'm with you. I love a good work-life balance. Yes. For sure. Yeah. It is real. Um, and yeah. what measures do you take to, to then um, ma- ensure that your team is, is balanced as well? Yeah, we are just kind of starting to get into that. So I've had an amazing crew of part-timers, freelancers, kind of agency type support over the past two years. Jiggy's now two and a half almost. Um, and the last few months has been my first full timer. And so now we're team about four with some of that, um, some of that part-time support still. And so the last few months is, it's been a great exercise. And the first two years of Jiggy, like my experience kind of leadership wise was very product, you know, the business, the sales, marketing, all of that. And I haven't yet really had the, you know, other side of, of being a founder and CEO, which is the team and, Mm -hmm. and internal leadership and culture. Um, so we're kind of actively still defining that and seeing what works and what's the right balance of, you know, everyone being aware and having eyes on everything and what are the potential bottlenecks or holdups, but you know, not like micromanaging, especially it's only like three people still. So, um, (laughs) and, and all remote and always have been remote. So, um, so yeah, kind of that's, that's an open and very top of mind thing for me, but, um, you know, my, I, I'm open to all, you know, we text and text call, Slack, email. And so if something is, uh, is really, uh, inhibiting anybody else's work, I try to prioritize that first. Um, and I think just prioritization, getting super clear on, you know, each, each person's, what they're owning, how it all works together. Um, and then prioritizing and making sure like, you know, we, we get to what we can. I think I've come around and a a lot of people like I'm having, hearing and having more and more conversations around, um, like it can be both. It can be like interesting, important work and not kill yourself stressful. I think for a while, this kind of hustle culture of like, if you're not suffering, you don't (laughs) deserve it. You know, (laughs) you haven't earned it if you're not miserable. And I feel like that's changing a lot, which I'm very happy to see. And I'm trying to, to bring that to my team too. Yeah. Gary V has even cooled down quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yay, millennials, we can do this. Um, but do, do you have any uh, any tips or advice for anyone who's having trouble striking that balance? Because I know, I know quite a few people who will go for 80 hours and then they're like, I'm dying, but I don't know how to do this differently. Yeah, I've done like very, um, it feels a little silly doing it, but it it ends up being insightful for me of like, very intentional like audits of my time and I'll, um, you know, do almost like 
like a lawyer tracks to 15 minutes of what their billables are. Like I'll really for a week, if I'm feeling off balance or like I'm spinning wheels and I'm like working hard, but like the same things are rolling over on the to-do list or something. I'll, um, have a very intentional kind of audit of my time in very small increments and see what those blockers are. And for me, you know, a lot because again, I was bootstrapping and like really kind of scared to spend and, um, and ultimately getting to, to loosening that grasp a bit and just understanding mm-hmm. like what is the best use of my time and what is it really just worth it to like bring someone on or get a service for or outsource um and ultimately free up my time you know if i can be doing if i can be you know focusing my time on the areas that are my strengths and like growing the pie then like that extra thousand dollars a month to outsource that um so so really kind of being intentional about um, about not just bandwidth overall, but the specific tasks I'm still keeping on my plate versus delegating, um, and, and doing kind of either like Pomodoro method or like real kind of, um, tight time blocks to understand what's getting in the way. Sounds like you've got a lot of strategies. That's really awesome. <laughs> well, and the, try. The, the Pomodoro technique, uh, remind me that's spending a certain amount of time and then mm-hmm. when that certain amount of time is up you have to go do something else right mm-hmm. or stand up yeah, or get so a drink like, of water exactly trying to do like deep work like one um it's funny because I always kind of like prided myself on being a multitasker and I've also changed my tune where I'm like I don't think like I'm gonna attempt to be the best unitasker at this one thing for, and usually I think it's 20 minutes. I have, a, I have like a physical, like a kitchen timer. Um, yes. and so you do 20 minutes and then you have to do at least five, like right. off change, walk, whatever. Um, even like email, you know, my team makes fun. The, they, they're like, Oh, it's Kaylin's email hour. Cause I'm like, <laughs> you know, everything comes through at the same time. Um, yeah. but you know, the idea that like, the emails that come in are never like my priorities or my to-do list, you know, it's everyone else's. So limiting when I allow that. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. So in our research, we read that Jiggy grew 550% during COVID and during COVID is who knows what that means, but 550% (laughs) over any short stretch of time. That's fantastic. So it seems like you really timed it just right and or just rode the wave just perfectly. And now that people are like allowed to leave their homes again, what's your strategy to keep the momentum going? And how can other founders navigate success that happens through circumstances out of their control? Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's the timing ended up again, I was thinking about it for years and then November, 2019 actually launched. So it was just one of those things. And then, um, you know, it was really double edged because it brought incredible demand and attention for a product like ours, but also brought all of these constraints and supply chain issues and all that. So really tried to view this window of, of opportunity and interest, um, to one, just like 
bring people into our fold and kind of view it as like, here is a, a lead gen circumstance. So how do we, you know, get you sign up for email or SMS and how do we keep providing not just kind of here's our product, buy it, but engaging content. That's where a lot of kind of community stuff and telling our artist stories um, comes in. So a lot of focus on that organic kind of social email um, content and, and dialogue we have with the community. Um, you know, one thing about puzzles we found, which I certainly found um, and kind of led was was that that origin story is that they're addicting. And I, you know, would, it really became, it was habitual and became kind of my nightly unwind practice. Um, and so once we saw that behavior also starting with our customers, we kind of leaned in and tried to, to, um, formalize that into a product offering, which is our puzzle club. So it's a monthly membership. Um, and we curate the art and it's a different artist and you get a studio tour and behind the scenes with the artist. And then you receive the, their puzzle every month. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I think really that's kind of on the customer side. And then some of the new, um, uses of puzzles, which we kind of have this whole deck for our partners. We call it puzzles as a platform. And really, how do we use puzzles as a vehicle for a moment, a brand, you know, a brand launch, a product launch or employee gifting, especially when everyone's remote and stuck at home, you know, how do you kind of surprise and delight your, your employees or customers, um, or VIPs with, uh, with a branded puzzle. And so opening up that, you know, understanding that B2C, we're going to continue to, to, you know, in cultivate that community and have this subscription and really create that ritual and habit around puzzles that will continue the demand. But, you know, it, everyone's allowed outside, you know, there is some natural seasonality like summer when you're doing outdoor activities. Um, so how do we also kind of buffer that and build the B2B business, um, to, to kind of even out some of that, that seasonality or loss in demand. Um, so working a lot on the custom side, um, our big wholesale and retail partners, um, and again, using puzzles as kind of, a, a different angle. We, we just, one example, we just worked with the music artist, Casey Musgraves. She launched her album. And her. so we put her, <laughs> I love her too. <laughs> totally fangirling, but we put her, um, you know, her new cover album art on a puzzle. And, um, that was, you know, sold alongside the album release, kind of a, a different way to engage fans. We've talked with a couple other partners and with a similar um, kind of type structure of the partnership. And there's something about putting a puzzle together that, you know, is very, um, uh, uh, very ripe for like surprise and delay, kind of Easter egg. We're talking with one partner about including like a QR code, kind of Willy Wonka ticket, mm. win the tour yes. ticket. <laughs> um so I think there are a lot of fun ways that we want to show. And I was talking to an, an advertising guy and he was like, wait, hold on. Like I spend $5 million on 30 seconds 
of attention and you're telling me someone's going to spend eight hours with this thing and I can put my logo on it. Like, so, you know, really kind of, um, building out that revenue stream to support the business overall while we, you know, definitely still continue to invest on the direct consumer side. Yeah. I, I don't know if y'all could hear this, but when you said Casey Musgraves, I'm pretty sure I heard our producer <laughs> Michaela like squealing in the background. Oh my God. Um, so all um, of our pre-podcast meetings were filled with, oh my gosh, she did, she did the Musgraves thing. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Ethan's over here like, what? Every, everybody um, gets it but me and that's. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we've, Ethan and I have had multiple conversations about uh, brands and companies building out that personal touch with their consumers mm-hmm. and hearing more about that and the lengths you're going to to include consumers in this community of, you know, doing a jigsaw puzzle might be you at your kitchen table by yourself and building that mm-hmm. community around like, hey, we all like to do this. That's brilliant, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. And you've been featured in a ton of publications. Um, is this part of your marketing strategy, or do you just like us that much? <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely is. And I think I've, you know, the publications you mentioned, like they're, I see just two two pronged. One is just, you know, the we're an econ, we have a product to sell. So gift guides, you know, kind of the quick, quick hits, different roundups, um, gift guide products, lists, things like that. But, um, really the, the opportunity to share more about what we're about. And, you know, sometimes on those lists, like, oh, you're pretty puzzle, pretty packaging, cool, but can miss a lot of like, our artists and what we're trying to do and what we stand for and how, uh, the people behind it. So, um, so I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share that side of the business. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have any advice for anyone that, um, wants to reach a wider audience through media and maybe I might be a little shy? I think, I mean, for shyness, so how to reach them, I think being super clear on just your why and how, how, what you're doing, how is it bigger than you? Um, and, and how to make that resonate with people. Um, and I think, you know, shyness, like I, to get to, to, of course, if, it's yours and you have to be the one speaking it. Like ultimately, you know, you, um, it is your voice and face, but if almost getting behind the, the brand and mission is more comfortable, um, I think that can be, can be equally as powerful, um, to just lead with that and make sure that, um, you know, I think people, like it's much easier to negotiate on someone else's behalf, right? Than your own. So kind of the mm-hmm. similar approach of like, um, you are a, you are a steward of this message, if you will. And so kind of lead with that. Yeah. And I, for those of you who don't know me, I am incredibly introverted and I will say that practice helps, but I can't <laughs> imagine, I can't imagine being on everything you've been on and being like, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> I would, I would be so scared. <laughs> oh, you didn't get the memo. We're going on the cover of Podcast Weekly. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> 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 Whew. 
Just yeah, kidding. We'll if podca- Podcast Weekly, if you're a real thing, uh, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> yeah. So, drop a line. <laughs> All right. So you've got direct-to-consumer store on your website, but Jiggy Puzzles can also be found in retail stores. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, there's an advantage to being in multiple places, but what is... What's the kind of uh, the thought on I should do one versus the other? I should do both. Um, how did you come up to that? I had been thinking about whether, you know, I felt like in the beginning it was binary, like retail, yes or no. And um, I'm from the onset and still most excited and passionate about the direct to consumer and building our own community and audience and all of the things I've mentioned thus far and really um, having the brand be centered around that. But one, I I saw kind of the things that convinced me to do retail were one, seeing some of the behavior of our customers and that, you know, gifting, for example, you know, we'd get emails like, I want to bring this to a housewarming. It's tonight. (laughs) Where can I find you in the next 30 minutes? Um, So having accessibility in key markets, you know, with shelf space um, and, and two to kind of, as I mentioned before, like the, the positioning of the product. So decided to do retail, but wanted to be specific about which partners. So the first First one we went with was anthropology. Since then, we've been in Nordstrom's and Bloomingdale's um, and some kind of elevated gift boutiques. And so the whole positioning of the brand and our product, again, kind of away from toy game and into home, gift, lifestyle, decor, art, um, kind of having the, the retail partners we chose, like lend their brand name to help help that positioning and make that case. Um, and so have chosen to, to kind of use the, the partners wisely in that way and then direct our customers, you know, we want them to still be our, our jiggypuzzle.com customers, but if they, um, need to pick something up quickly or touch and feel and see the designs in person. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard, especially with the materials we use, uh, the glass and, you know, the thickness of, of our cardstock and all of that. It's, um, it's hard to communicate that through photography or through our product pages. Um, so I think now very much see them as, as a means to the same goal, um, it's just kind of a different experience we can provide. Gotcha. So you mentioned your first partnership, uh, your first retail partnership was with Anthropology. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us the story about how you went from no partnerships to mm-hmm. getting that first partnership with Anthropology? Yeah, it was right before COVID. So I was able to go in person, but I, um, I had done some just cold outreach when I was thinking about who, so I knew that, you know, Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, Free People, Beholden were the same parent brand. And actually some friends have been like, this feels like it might, like, you know, the urban, like, 
kind of miscellaneous table. Like I feel like there are puzzles there. Um, I thought anthropology was a good brand fit for us and kind of our demographic and that uh, I knew during Q4, they really leaned more into gifts and home than apparel. Um, so I had been doing some outreach and then I think she first reached out. She actually had found me on Instagram separately. So it wasn't my, my email that did it, but <laughs> the, one of the buyers, um, saw us on Instagram and reached out and I packed my car up. They're based in Philadelphia. And so not, not a far drive from New York City. So, uh, packed up some samples and drove to Philly and went to their headquarters. And, you know, we really, just kind of talked through like who the shopper is, who our jiggy puzzler is. And, um, you know, what really connected, I think with them is that they, you know, they felt like the anthropology woman, um, is like both wants form and function. So like she pre, she wants something practical. She wants the, the use, um, the use of it, but expects it to, you know, be, curated and elevated and look Instagrammable in her home. And, you know, um, so we felt it was just super aligned. They already had a bunch of like artist residence programs and, um, do a lot of support of, of emerging artists. And so they had in-house artists already that they wanted to use the work of. So we curated uh, seven designs together for our Jiggy Anthropology collaboration um, and then launched those, timed that for the holiday season. So launched those October of that first year. Um, it was definitely not seamless. Um, <laughs> I got ahead of my skis a little bit. Uh, you know, I went from I was still, still <laughs> one woman show, mind you. And, you know, it was like tens of thousands of units, which was like more than we had sold on our own already. Um, and very specific, you know, the whole wholesale guidelines of, you know, how things need to be labeled and the master cartons and how they need to be delivered and all that it was just, um, very technical, which I did not have expertise in, but, um, you know, again, one of those, you figure it out one foot in front of the other. Um, and yeah, seeing being one year in, well, we launched in October 2020, so less than a year in, um, and seeing a national rollout in all domestic anthropology stores was just a really kind of surreal, special moment. That's an anthropology is an experience. I feel like yeah. like everyone who's been in one knows what they look like, you know? Yeah. Um, and like speaking of Instagram, um, how mm -hmm. did you leverage your social media following um, or really get your social media going to where it was impacting your business? Yeah, I started the Instagram pre-launch. I was like, all right, so... You know, the product's being made right now, it takes a minute, then we have to ship it, it takes a minute. So like, what can I do in the meantime? So I started collecting emails and threw up like a landing page with a wait list and then started the social accounts. Um, so for a few months before launch, you know, posted kind of 
puzzle tangential content I would say um and just art you know not the specific designs we were launching with but some um just kind of discovery of new art and so that was helpful even just for launch day and then um once we launched I've you know I still it's one of those things that I feel very particular about any anything that's kind of um, customer facing voice and personality of the brand. So all email, uh, social SMS, like I'm, I still write every word of for the most part. And, um, I, it's definitely not scalable, but it's still just one of those things that, um, that I, I feel very strongly about. So, um, yeah, now that we have, you know, I think, I don't know, we're like 70,000 followers. It definitely um, has become a channel that both is great for just discovery and visibility and people um, people share and find us that way. But it's also become like a, uh, a two-way, a dialogue. So people, you know, DM or comment all the time, different ideas, send us different artists that they would want to mm-hmm. see Um you know, will you do kids puzzles? Will you do, for example, frames of something that came from that because, you know, they finish their puzzle and then reach out and be like, all right, like what size, what thickness, what do I need to do? So we actually just launched our own jiggy frames. So it's a pairing, um, pairing for each design. Um, and so, yeah, now see, see our social is, um, as kind of one, one spoke of our community hub um, where we get a lot of insight and learn um, and then and then email as well. So I think I mean it really depends on your brand and like it content creation and keeping up with like the best practices of cadence mm-hmm. and uh, right. everything that you need to do to really have it be like a tentpole of the brand takes a ton of work. Um, and especially if you're like an aesthetically driven brand, which we are between the photography of the product and the art, you know, want, want that to be visually captured. Um, it, it's definitely, definitely, uh, um, a big lift, but I think ultimately worth it. And I can't tell you how many times we just anecdotally hear that's how people found us or, you know, um, you know, bought one puzzle and now have have been following for two years and not bought another, but feel a connection to the brand through it. Yeah. And, um, you said something, um, that like piqued my interest as a branding kind of person, but your brand voice and personality, um, Mm -hmm. in my experience, a lot of people skip that part. Um, Mm -hmm. but how did you really define that and narrow it down? Y'all are a very aesthetic brand. You're very aesthetics driven. Mm -hmm. How does, how did you define that voice when you started out? Yeah, that's been another exercise now with building out a team of, you know, for a long time, I didn't have to because it was mine basically. (laughs) Like I didn't, you know, I didn't really have to like meta like explain it it was just like very natural but um I mean we did the same exercise at the skim which was fascinating because that was the entire product right like the voice of the newsletter um was 
crucial and how to scale that, how to hire an editorial team that, you know, as a reader, it would be seamless and couldn't even tell who wrote it one way, one day to the next. Um, so got a lot, saw that firsthand and, um, and got a lot of good insight there of how to kind of formalize, uh, a voice into, uh, you know, a guide and, and, um, something, a playbook that could, could be passed off to someone. Um, and you know, I, I try to walk kind of a fine balance and even with the name. So I think that was probably in the beginning, the most, the like, um, catalyst to really kind of articulate the brand because it's like, all right, I want it. I want it to tie to puzzles. I want it to make sense and be related and puzzle jigsaw something, but, and I want it to be, um, kind of not necessarily minimalist, but like short and sweet and to the point and not too much like pomp and circumstance, but also I want it to be playful. Like I, I'm, I'm approaching this in an elevated way, but like at the end of the day, it's a puzzle. Like I want it to have some fun and playfulness. Um, and so going through that exercise to, you know, have Google docs of, (laughs) of potential names and ultimately get to Jiggy, um, that was kind of the first step. I, and right. all I can think about is, uh, that Will Smith song. So it's been <laughs> in my head this entire interview. So <laughs> oh, yeah, you, there's always you, one jiggy pun and <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have puns. I mean, come on. Right. Yeah. Sorry, you went a different Ethan. direction, a different direction on that than I did. Uh, you know, you said you wanted short and sweet and I was like, saw, you know, jigsaw, but I that's, that's already taken. Um, uh, they talk about, you know, they say, I want to play a game. Well, you know, yeah. Maybe not the same kind of game. So, Oh, my God. That right. would have stood out in the market for sure. <laughs> All right. Um, so something yeah, your that turn. Heard, I can't hold it together. <laughs> something that we've heard from every one of our founders so far is that entrepreneurship is hard. It's just, it's hard. I mean, there, there's no way to get around it. Um, so what was something, what was something that surprised you when you jumped in, uh, when you launched your startup? Was there something that was just like so much harder than you thought it was going to be? Or even the opposite? Was there something that was like, you were thinking it was going to be super hard and it was just like way easier than you thought it was going to be? Um, I think the things that I thought might have been hard that ended up not are just the things that like seem, if you've never done it before, seem like confusing or just all the infrastructure, like incorporating and setting up and, you know, becoming compliance and all of like the kind of hard business ops side. Um, And so that was kind of a pleasant surprise of just, there's so many materials out there and just like checklists. I'm like, I don't like, you know, with a physical product, like we have glass, someone's going to cut themselves and sue us. And like, how do I, you know, just all of those things that can seem quite overwhelming. And, um, you know, between just like, you got like checklists, what do you need to do? What do you need to know? What, you know, disclaimers, business insurance, stuff like that. There's just, um, so many materials and, and, you know, experts that will lend, um, lend themselves 
So that has actually not been as much um, of a hindrance as I might have thought. The things that have truly been hard, I think, you know, like the in the weeds stuff of just um, deciding like policies around some, you know, customer service issues. Um, how do you balancing like being a small business and having to, uh, to have, you know, the unit economics make sense, but then also just, um, be generous with like customer service issues or lost packages and reshipping and, um, and, you know, some of the things that are just like the cost of doing business, um, and defining, defining what, um, what your, your approach and policies are, um, has like actually been a, a bit less straightforward than I would have thought. Um, again, some of just the manufacturing and, freight, especially in the COVID world, I think for the first time ever, like every international shipping container was booked at one point in time. Um, So things that you, I guess this, like to sum it up, like some things that you have no control over, especially as a like very um, kind of type A, like to... I've done hard things before, but they were always within my control. Like in school, okay, I have my thesis due. Like I will pull all-nighters. I will do whatever it has, you know, to be told like your product's at the port and it can't get off the boat for two weeks. And so your customers are now angry and you're going to need to refund everyone for the holidays. And so you're going to lose money and there's nothing you can do. And I'm like, oh my God, "Mm, I don't like – bribe someone at port authority like what do you mean there's nothing to do (laughs) like i don't that's so hard to accept right and so you know i'm like swim go to the boat like i don't know figure it out and so yeah yeah um so honestly some of the hardest moments have just been around like the lack of control and then and then the downstream like disappointing customers and like you know missing a moment or a sales window or holidays or something um and just kind of having to be okay with that or figure out plan b c d e um yeah that's been hard yeah plan b don't mess up plan a like (laughs) (laughs) um yes (laughs) i would have a hard time like i'm kind of a i like all my control in one little Please, mm-hmm. please don't take that from me. So I would really struggle a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in in some of our previous conversations and previous digging, um, there was a there was a story about um, blank puzzles going out, and I would love to know more um, because it sounds like it it turned out really well. Yes, it was one of those. Um uh, what's that saying? I love, uh, necessity's the mother of invention moments. Uh, uh-huh. when we launched in November, 2019, we, you know, I'd gotten our first production run. We were mm-hmm. selling through them. And then March, 2020, you know, stay at home orders, quarantine, everyone's looking for activity, stuck at home. So our, the remainder of our inventory, which I thought was going to last months, sold yeah. out in a couple of weeks. So April, 2020, we're sold out. Um, I rushed back into production, you know, 
reorder everything, but it's going to be a couple months until it mm-hmm. arrives. So we had this period when it's like, all right, I'm a four month old company. How do I stay relevant when I have nothing to sell people? And yeah. so, you know, first we did gift cards and we did, we did digital gift cards. And then we got these really cute mini puzzle gift cards. They're 24 pieces and you put them together oh, and it reveals your redemption code. And then, um, and then kind of this idea came out of both, um, what we were hearing from our artist community. So while this all was happening, you know, we were having conversations with our artists about how they were doing and were they okay. And a lot of their galleries were, were closed or exhibits were canceled. And so they were in a tough spot and didn't have, you know, there weren't a ton of commissions of original art in the early days of COVID with such uncertainty. So, um, the idea came to me to, um, use them and their, their, you know, free time to create, um, to get the only thing our, our factory could provide were blank white puzzles. So the pieces were cut. There was just nothing printed on them. And so they, we got those, we distributed them to our artists and they hand painted and and hand drew directly on to these puzzles so created you know a a real one-of-a-kind um original puzzle and then we hosted an auction of them so it was a jiggy originals puzzle art auction and we shared the proceeds between the artist herself and new york city covid fundraising efforts um, and so that ended up being a really kind of special moment for the brand, for our relationship with these artists, um, and, and for our community who, you know, participated in the auction. Uh, so it, it definitely kind of was that, that adaptability, uh, quotient idea of yeah. how to use what you have. And I think that's why having a why is so important and having a mission, um, because that was really, you know, our, our support of artists and having them be so integral to the brand is really where that came from and wouldn't have been possible without them. Yeah. You ended up with a very personal touch in there and like, what an experience for people that do own those puzzles now. That's yeah, it's very cool. Exactly. I really, I'm really glad we got to talk about that story. <laughs> um, and how how do you deal with imposter syndrome? And do you mm-hmm. have any advice for entrepreneurs working through that? Yeah, I definitely, definitely have it, deal with it. And I think the more you grow, kind of the then like the bigger kind of conversations you're in, you know, talking to like Casey Musgraves, you know, uh, managers and like, the, um, I feel like on the one hand, the more experience you have or the bigger your brand gets, like maybe the less you should have it because you, you did this thing and you have this big brand, but then you're also like hopefully leveling up and yeah. talking, uh, you know, in bigger conversations, in bigger rooms. Um, so, you know, I think, um, I think kind of back to that skin, like the, demystifying the more that I just hear and see and network and talk to friends and other founders and like really just the um the shared experiences and and really 
hearing and seeing that everyone feel at least feels like they're winging it. Um, and to have that kind of be an open conversation and more normalized, um, really, really helps. And, and ultimately I think, you know, I, I heard someone recently kind of trying to reframe imposter syndrome of like, it's not a bad thing. Like, it's actually a good, like we should embrace it. Cause like, hopefully that means you are stretching your comfort zone and like you are, you know, leveling up. And, and, um, so rather than, you know, I think seeing it, someone's like, seeing fear or imposter syndrome, um, as an obstacle, like seeing is actually like a good sign that like you're on the right track. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's heartening for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This has been a really great show. Um, I've really, I've really enjoyed having you on, um, one more question and then we'll wrap up. Um, how can our listeners support Jiggy and is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Yeah. So supporting Jiggy can look like, um, following us, engaging with us, sending us artists you love. Uh, so we're Jiggy puzzles everywhere on the internet, uh, Instagram, website, uh, Facebook. And, um, and of course, like take a look, check out our puzzles. If you're, you're looking for something to unwind or have a puzzle lover in your life to gift to, um, that, that would mean the world to us. Um, and other things I'd like to share, you know, keep, keep eyes peeled for some things we have ahead. As I mentioned, we're always, uh, listening and talking to, to our community about ideas. So the frames that I mentioned, um, was a new thing. And then in the coming months, we have both that art voting contest. Uh, the winners of that are our next collection, which are launching in the spring. Um, some fun, big collaborations similar to our, similar to our Casey Musgraves and, uh, and then kids puzzles as well, which I'm really excited about with some incredible um, illustrative artists for a hundred piece kid sizes. Man, so many fun things to look forward to. <laughs> um, uh, we will put yeah, we will put links to social channels and any other uh, fun stuff in the show notes. Um, and Kaylin, thank you so much for joining us today. That is unfortunately, though, a wrap for this episode of the Startup (laughs) Savants podcast. We made it. Um, We want to thank you, uh, listener, for hanging out with us today. Um, Do you want to chime in? If you think we're doing a good job, let us know in the comments over at startupsavant.com slash podcast. If you think we are awful, let us know in the comments (laughs) over at startupsavant.com slash podcast. Ethan reads the bad ones. I read the good ones. Um, If you really loved the show, head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher and leave us a five-star review. For tools, guides, videos, startup stories, and so much more, head over to truick.com. That's truick.com, T-R-U-I-C.com. See you, folks. Peace. Peace.